Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK, coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, weed and church, not often discussed in the same sentence, but one pastor smells a skunky opportunity. I saw an opportunity for investment, and too often is the case that people of color, and black people in particular, are left on the platform as the train of progress pulls out. And I was determined in this instance that the members of my congregation in my community we're no longer going to be on the platform, but rather we were going to be on board. And then the crew talks about Big Brother and the government surveillance state, our worst fear, or in Isabel's case, her second worst fear because her first one is being buried alive. Unless you're a 16-year-old who's like a total rebel, church and weed are probably not two things that go together in your mind. Which is why we were surprised to hear about a Brooklyn church that hosted a conference called The Business of Cannabis earlier this year. Our curiosity was so piqued that we had the organizers of the conference on the show to talk about why church-going communities of color need to get with the high times. So here is our conversation with Pastor Anthony Trufant of Emmanuel Baptist Church and Gia Marone, the Executive Vice President for Women Grow. I'd like to thank you both for joining us today. It's not every day that you hear about a weed conference being held at a church, so I'm curious about the inception of this. Who approached whom? I'll let Gia. <laughs> Gia, we'll start with you. <laughs> you tell it so well. Uh, so I think we can both share the story. So uh, it was almost a year ago, or over a year ago now, the Reverend and I were both on an Amtrak train and we descended both at Penn Station. We had no idea both of us were on the train. And uh, we live in the same neighborhood and decided to share an Uber ride back to Brooklyn. And on the way back, you know, it was a casual catch-up. I'd already known uh, the, the Reverend and his family for quite some time. So the natural question of what are you up to? And I explained that I said, oh, I'm in the cannabis industry. And it was a chance. I was a little bit nervous sharing that uh, just based on the overall stigma. And his response surprised me because he said, I've been reading about that. And I thought, you have? That's fantastic. So that led to a conversation uh, and a really interesting conversation, I'd say, that then later on led to his outreach to me saying, hey, we're doing an event at the church in June would you be open to bringing this information to our attendees? And what I wanted to add this time was two issues. I wanted to add a conversation about cryptocurrency, and I wanted to add a conversation about cannabis. This is some cutting-edge so, stuff for a church, I have to say. Well, I, actually, uh, not for mine. Okay. Uh, if you knew anything about the composition of my congregation, we have been on the corner of Lafayette and St. James uh, for 138 years this April. Uh, but the church has the distinction, the unique distinction of one being founded by Charles Pratt, uh, who is the founder of Pratt Institute, two of having evolved in terms of racial and ethnic composition from being a predominantly white congregation to being a predominantly black congregation. These kind of issues resonate with them, and they also resonate with me. So it's easy for me to share them. Now, I'm able to share them all the more because I've been there almost 30 years. Uh, so there's a level of relational currency that I've put in the congregational bank over the years that allows me to draw down on these kind of experiences. Uh, because while we did it 
Chia can tell you, uh, she got a little bit of it. Not everybody was happy about uh, this conference being held at the church, but I would say uh, our church is indicative of the way democracy works. So by and large, if you have 80 to 90% of the people with you, uh, on the subject, then you're fine. And and really, I had the vast majority of my members who were behind it. Those who were opposed were just members who had memories of the 90s, having grown up during the crack epidemic, uh, and had people who stole from them, people who did all kinds of things. And they feared uh, that it was a gateway drug. And they thought that by doing this, you might open up the floodgates again. And with Gia's assistance, uh, I was able to give them the facts And once people heard the facts, it didn't necessarily change the way they felt, but it did make them tolerant. And so I had the support of most members and at least the tolerance of a a few uh, vocal and influential uh, members. And in addition to the crack epidemic, I imagine that you might have older members of your congregation um, who have seen communities devastated by the over-policing and and criminalization of marijuana and thought nothing good can come of marijuana. So why are we rushing to embrace this? Well, actually, no. Let me offer you a general uh, pushback. So I have members who uh, more often not, uh, really uh, in large measure, fit into uh, the category of persons who underneath the radar are making use of medical marijuana. Uh, And they have done so largely because their doctors have prescribed it in large measure because the medications that they they were previously on that the pharmaceutical companies produce uh, were too exorbitant in terms of cost and sometimes too unpredictable in terms of side effects. But with medical marijuana, it's a whole different thing. It's more affordable. uh, People can do it more discreetly. uh, And then what is more people seem to come to the church with a little more pep in their step and they're a bit more uh, (laughs) congenial and giddy. Uh, In fact, I have one of my members uh, who's a leader who has severe back pain. And uh, he shared with me when he heard that we were doing the conference that he was uh, using uh, medical marijuana. Uh, We have a little joke that we uh, share from time to time. I'll see him and he's about to leave the church. He said, Rev, I'm about to go home and get my medicine. So, (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Just by chance, you happen to be on the same train. You shared a cab home. You struck up this conversation about the future of marijuana and how it might impact your community. Uh, And so you invited Gia to speak uh, at this one-time event, and that led to a larger conference. Is that right? Yes. Gia, tell me a little bit about that. I I appreciate Emmanuel just being open to that conversation because I think from the cannabis industry's point is this is a conversation we've been longing to have with faith-based across the board. So this opportunity allowed us to share the knowledge and information that we are exposed to in terms of bringing the medical professionals to the church, bringing the scientists, bringing the attorneys, bringing the advocates. And this is a lot of the information that hasn't been shared before. These are professionals that typically they do not have access to. And Gia, you're the executive vice president of Women Grow. Maybe you can tell me why it's important, as we're on the cusp here of uh, legalizing marijuana in New York, and it's already legal in nine states, it's a conversation we're having nationwide. Why is it important for women and communities of color to be involved in this discussion early? Well, for several reasons. One, right now, the industry is being led by men, and and it's actually being led by white men. And what we've seen even in other industries is that it's the struggle of diversifying the industry. 
Right. And so we have Women Grow, which, which is an organization uh, that was created to connect, educate, empower, and inspire the next generation of cannabis leaders, which means is that we're not cultivating cannabis, we're actually cultivating leaders because we want to see more women and more people of color in the forefront, not only just leading businesses, but also ownership on on company boards, uh, being more at the table or even building our own tables. And Reverend, a similar question to you, as a spiritual leader and a leader of your community, um, do you see this as a social justice issue? Why do you think it's important for your community to be engaged with this discussion? I, I see it as a multidimensional uh, issue. Uh, first and foremost, I see it as a matter of uh, compassion. Uh, so for persons who don't have adequate access to medical coverage, persons who are finding themselves in an unenviable position of trying to choose between paying rent and paying for medication. Cannabis is something that's far more accessible, it's affordable. The second issue is an issue of economic justice. uh, That one, I saw an opportunity for investment, and too often is the case that people of color, uh, and black people in particular, are left on the platform as the train of progress pulls out. And I was determined in this instance that the members of my congregation in my community were no longer going to be on the platform, but rather we were going to be on board. And the reality is, even as we're getting on board, this train has been slowly but consistently moving away from the station uh, for some time now. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been people like Gia and others who have been working feverishly uh, for a number of years trying to make sure that uh, people of color and women can get a foothold in the industry. For me, it was an opportunity to look at uh, and Gia and her colleagues explained this to me, not only investment, but employment opportunities that are available that's associated with it. Employment opportunities on the front end in terms of growing, on the, on the back end in terms of cultivation, then also in terms of harvesting, transporting, bookkeeping, all kinds of jobs. So that was important to me. And then additionally, there, were, there are micro-business opportunities for people to sell products. And so for, in particular, millennials who tend to be less preoccupied with getting a job and more preoccupied with trying to make sure that their life has an impact, many of them are opting uh, to work for someone else for a while and, and learn on their dime, but they actually intend to be in business for themselves. So that just makes sense to me. Then the last piece is the restorative justice issue. And from what I can discern from conversations that I've had uh, with our uh, district attorney, uh, Eric Gonzalez, who I, I think is incredible. He is continuing the legacy of Ken Thompson, and he's really pushing the envelope and trying to insist that on low-level offenses, that number one, he's not going to prosecute. On number two, he's looking at the prospect of being able to expunge the records uh, of persons who were convicted. And then thirdly, I am interested, and I haven't had this conversation with him yet, what happens if, when rather, I should say, New York State uh, legalizes it, what implications does that have for people who are behind bars? Will their sentences be commuted? Will they be reduced? Those are kind of my concerns, and you know, I see this issue as multi-layered. 
Gia, does your organization do any policy work, especially around this issue of restorative justice, where we know that black and brown communities suffer disproportionately from the criminalization of marijuana? Are you working with legislators at all to try and, and make sure that these records can be expunged? In terms of what Women Grow is doing is we are working with our local officials. We're working with, of course, advocacy groups attending and participating in lobby days. We are speaking with uh, and meeting with our Congress people, those on Capitol Hill or here in New York and in Albany, really just to find out what can we do to help move this along. We need to make sure that those that have been incarcerated or those who have been released but they still have the priors on their record, that they have an entry point and an opportunity in this industry. So we're doing our best not only just for the social justice piece, but also the diversity piece of it. Uh, Because if we're not stating up front that women and people of color need to be included in terms of these licenses and ancillary opportunities and loans, one of the uh, struggles that women and uh, people of color are having is lack of access to capital. We're, We're asking for equity as well as equality. There seems to be a very possible future where all of the white male stoners who the media portrays as adorable and harmless end up being the ones who have access to capital and become titans of this new industry. Uh, And it seems like that's a future that you guys are working to try and subvert. Well, I think a couple of things come to mind for me. Uh, One is that while we're working on this at the state level, and I don't know that this is going to be negotiated with equity, until there is sufficient political will, political muscle applied to the powers that be, largely because when it comes down to expecting moral suasion arguments to compel people to do the right thing, that rarely works. Uh, People do the right thing when you give them incentive to do the right thing, Uh, when they feel as if they're going to lose something or when they feel as if they can gain something. Uh, they tend to do the right thing. What uh, Gia and her colleagues were sharing with me is that there is so much money to be made that the way in which it's structured from the very outset excludes. So uh, I was asking about personal opportunities to invest, and she was telling me about the licenses. And so I think one of uh, you and your colleague were telling me that uh, you need a million dollars in assets. And then you need $250,000 liquid in order to apply for a partial license, if I'm not right, mistaken. Right, right. So that's not, even a, um, that's not even a full vertical license. And so mm-hmm. what that means is that that's not the cultivation, the processing. the So that probably falls above $25 million or more, right? Wow. And so when you look at the numbers across the board, it's not typically what women or communities of color generally have access to overall. Now imagine going to ask for that, right? If you look at technology industry, you look at any other, you're only beginning to see now venture capital companies or women-owned companies saying, we're going to invest in women because women are still lacking capital. So when you look at cannabis and you're saying, what, just for, and that's not even guaranteed, right? Because you still have to, once you, have that license, you still have to build the business. You still have to maintain the business. Oftentimes, there are people who are selling their licenses because it's very expensive to maintain, right? And so imagine people coming from communities like ours 
being faced with this and not really having the access to go to someone for a million dollars or for your community to get behind you in, in building up businesses such as this. So for us to already be excluded from the onset is, is discouraging, but we're not giving up. Because if you look at California right now, they're in the middle of uh, trying to set up their social equity program. And I honestly say no one has gotten it right just yet. But that doesn't mean that we can't keep working towards it. I think New York has an opportunity to be an example. I think that we can look at what other states are doing, such as Massachusetts, Colorado, and California, and, and look at what they're doing and see what works for us. There's a lot of conversations that are currently happening now, and uh, there's a lot of advocacy groups that are working with organizations like myself, as well as smaller farmers. I mean, outside of just our community, you think about the small farmers who are looking to, to become a part of this. That Honestly, they don't have the capital to, to do this. So we need to make sure that we have a program in place that includes versus excludes us. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and oftentimes we're seeing a lot of the capital that's coming in is from out of state, which is also unfortunate, right? We need to see this stay within our state, reinvest in communities. That's another, that's another issue that we'd like to uh, address is that the revenue that is being made from the cannabis industry should go back to the communities of which that have been most impacted. Absolutely. And, and Reverend, you mentioned that the moral imperative is not going to be enough, right? So, so let, me, uh, let me shift it, though, because I want to go back to something that Gia was saying, because I want to make sure that this is very clear. Let me drill down a bit further. In my conversation with Gia, when I was asking her about how this works in terms of the licenses, um, I shared with her that if you live in central Brooklyn and you have a home, you have a million dollar asset, right? That's not the issue. The issue becomes having $250,000 sitting in a bank account Liquid, somewhere. Right, right. Uh, people have 250 in their investment accounts, uh, but not just sitting um, liquid. Additionally, the problem becomes, I understand, that you will have had to have it uh, in the account for, what was it, two years? Or, yeah. Uh, so... Um, you will have had to have had it in the account for two years. So it's not that G and I could get together and she puts in 125000 right, right. I put in 125000 and uh, now we can afford the license. That's not the way it works. Individually, I have to have $250,000. This seems absurd. This seems like you have to pass this reading test in order to be able to vote. So uh, my, my point becomes... Uh, back to Gia's issue, that if it is a case that people are allowed to participate, but if you set up the rules from the very outset to exclude them, right. uh, then you look as if you're being charitable and fair, but in reality, you're not. It's an arbitrary stack deck, right? Um, Reverend, I'm curious about if you delivered any sort of remarks or sermon at this conference um, and about what the Bible has to say about weed. <laughs> People must ask you this, right? So, uh, again, uh, I have not read any passage in the Bible that talks about weed, all right, uh, marijuana. No more than I've read any passage in the Bible that talks about uh, the use of a smartphone or social media. But marijuana are, has been around for longer than a smartphone, to Yes, be <laughs> but, the, but at the same time, while it's been around, more often not in communities of color, it's been around as a part of folk medicine. 
that I, I remember my church, I'll share this antidote. Uh, we were sitting in staff meeting and, and uh, we were talking about uh, favorite memories that we have, you know. And so she shared the story about having grown up in the South, in Virginia in particular, in a rural area. And she used to go out and would watch people picking uh, a plant. And she said then they would come back and they would take the plant uh, and roll it up and smoke it. And they used to call it life everlasting. And I said to her, that's not life everlasting. That's weed. <laughs> potato, potato. <laughs> so she said, well, weed's been around a long time. <laughs> I, did, I didn't know that we were, I didn't know that we were um, exposed to weed so early in life. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just mentioning that it's for, for some people, it's not as foreign a concept as you might think. I just think that there are so many myths that are that have uh, been generated uh, by people who, for whatever reasons, didn't see the economic opportunity in it, but who now see the economic opportunity in it. So they are debunking the myths that they put out. And uh, people like uh, Gia and her uh, comrades are coming along and they are doing that in particular for communities of color. And I appreciate the fact that they go to these various conferences and they not only learn, but they present. And then they take that information and bring it back and allow us to sift through it and figure out what are the implications for us. And I really uh, tip my hat to her because the truth of the matter is the only thing that I did was I was wise enough to recognize a, a salient and strategic partner in this uh, area of concern that I wanted to know more about, and then I wanted my people to know more about, it, and I wanted the larger community to know about. But they had already been doing the work, and all I did was provide, and I, I provided a platform, and that we provided the people. But the interest is already there, and the work they were already doing. But he he was the one to say yes. So I, I'd say a couple of things. One, prior to 1937, cannabis was legal. Right. So without even talking about was it in the Bible or not, doctors were actually prescribing it within medicine. We've been in this prohibition state for almost 84 years. But prior to that, doctors were prescribing it. So it's interesting to hear when people say, well, you know, was it in the Bible? Well, actually, it was med it was considered medicine as it still is. Mm. And that's something for us to actually really take a look at. It was found in cough medicines. It was found in aspirins. It was found in uh, a, a process of a, like a powder form of some sort. So I think we need to actually go back to what some of the older practices were before thinking, oh, well, it wasn't in the Bible. Well, no, it was actually part of, you know, medical practice. That's one thing. Two, I think he's downplaying because honestly, I have to say what he did was groundbreaking and really, truly changed the narrative for the industry across the board. Once people across the country soar what was done right here in Brooklyn, New York, we have received calls from all over the country, out, as well as outside of the country. Because I think the idea was, wait a minute, they're right. This is going, and it's no longer a domestic topic. It's a global conversation. Cannabis is now legal in several countries. So if the, the faith base are not looking at this as we have a huge congregation, we have 
people who come to us in terms of guidance and leadership. Perhaps we need to take a closer look at what is being presented to our communities. And it is from a medical standpoint, but also from a business standpoint. And churches are not excluded from getting into this industry. And I think that's also something that people need to understand. And it's not necessarily about cultivation or dispensary. There are so many opportunities that can be presented. This is a huge field of opportunities, and it needs from janitorial services to your C-suite positions, and it requires services that are going to support our cultivation businesses, our dispensaries, our transportation. And so if we begin to broaden the conversation to look beyond just the smoking a joint or, or the stigma around this and really look at this is an actual industry that has publicly traded companies, you know, in the Canadian stock as well as in the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange. So we have to have this conversation. Otherwise, it's, it's a huge population of people that will miss out. I'm, I'm wondering something, uh, Gia, and I, um, perhaps you can help me, and I think that this will be of uh, interest to the audience. I thought that there was also opportunity for people who came up north during the Great Migration but still own property down south mm-hmm. that's sitting there. Uh, I'm wondering whether or not there are economic opportunities there. So if uh, I don't have to grow it, but if I lease out the land, and is that possible? So I would I would say yes. Okay. But it depends on the zoning, okay. right? So there's and, and it's a wonderful thing to hear. I, I was once uh, a conference. It's amazing how this industry takes you to different places. I never thought I'd find myself in Oklahoma, and I thought, wow, I never had an excuse to go to Oklahoma. But the conversation of hemp and cannabis is a big topic there, and there are many farmers who have acres of land. I'm talking about over 200, 300 acres of land. And they're like, we have this land, we're ready to grow. What we have to find out and what these individuals would have to find out is, is their land properly zoned to cultivate? You just can't have a backyard of of land and then decide to start cultivating. That's not how it works. But there is a great opportunity for those same families who do have families in uh, Virginia or, um, you know, in Texas or whatever have you to perhaps cultivate. But it's a matter of them now going to their um, state government to find out where are these areas being zoned. And then to your point, they could absolutely lease their land. It's another way of getting into the space. Absolutely. But, I, but I think I would nudge that and say not simply where, but insisting that in areas where people of color and my other minorities own uh, property, that those areas be included. Oh, uh, absolutely. Because uh, one of the other ways that you can exclude someone is simply, Zone you know, by, yeah, I mean, <laughs> as, as we know with redistricting. Voting. Right, yes. exactly. Yes. Well, maybe I'll close out with you, Reverend. Gia mentioned that churches are not excluded from getting involved in the mm-hmm. cannabis industry. Do we think Emmanuel Baptist Church might... Um, I know, might host a different kind of bake sale, not to make light of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I was very clear. Uh, you, you asked earlier whether or not I gave any remarks, and I set the framework at the very outset. I gave 
uh, words of greeting, and then I gave some guidelines. And um, the audience was just incredible. Uh, they were very inquisitive. They were gracious. Uh, they were engaged. And at the end of the experience, I came back and closed them out and just said, I really th I'm very thankful that we were able to host this event. You were great guests. Uh, I didn't uh, see anybody light up uh, <laughs> in the church, outside the church, uh, and I appreciate that. And uh, everybody laughed about that. But I really think that what Women Grow did and what we did together is something that is paradigmatic, and I think that it's replicatable uh, all across the country. I would also say this very quickly, and that is it's not only at the local and state level that we're looking at this, but remember also there are now conversations uh, that are being resurrected. Uh, Joe Kennedy uh, raised years ago uh, the issue of legalization. There's a, a senator from Oregon who has recently raised the issue of legalization. And then I understand that Mitch McConnell, I was reading an article somewhere where even he is talking about the prospect of doing it. Oh, bless. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, if he's doing it, we definitely know that it's not out of largesse. Uh, it's not uh, uh, because he's convinced that this is the great thing to do for people of color or or even for the country. It's a great thing to do for people who already have money, who want to make more money. And um, I think that one final comment is that is this. Uh, it just strikes me as strange that when people start talking about marijuana use, uh, the image that often pops up is not simply the white stoner, but the uh, the uh, black and brown person who's yes. on the corner uh, selling. Well, nowadays, uh, that, you know, so somebody who was using before may have used because they discovered the medicinal qualities, they were so wound up getting um, arrested and then uh, jailed. Well, now that we have the opioid crisis, I'm watching uh, communities where people are, are not being jailed but rather they're seeing it as a, as a health crisis. That's right. And uh, they're getting into treatment Treatments. programs. So why do some communities get treatment programs and it's an opioid phenomenon when really all it is is drug, is drug use. Uh, when people of color do it, it's drug use. Right. Uh, and we, and we get jailed and right. criminalized. And so I, I find that to be very, very problematic and hypocritical. I really do think that we are going to have to start looking uh, as a country not about ideological bents, but about how can we find areas of, of um, commonality? How can we partner to solve some of the issues that are before us? And ultimately, the, the, the best way that I was able to do this uh, and participate in the conversation, there is much that people can talk about with the Bible. But ultimately, Americans are not governed by the Bible, contrary to popular opinion. The foundational documents for us are the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. That functions as a frame of reference for social intercourse and discourse. So when you start talking about that, there's always that document has inherent in it the protection of the right, the protection and the promotion of the right of the individual. Uh, and I think that uh, that's something that we need to remember when we start looking at this. So it's not just about what's best for the church. It's about what's best for our country, what's best for, for our, our community, people. what exactly. are best for our families, yes. not just what's best for the church. And our church is always invested in trying to do what's best, not just for us, uh, but what's best for the larger community. 
Reverend Trufant, Gia Marone, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank, thank you for you. having us. Thank you so much. Recently, we talked about how the Chinese government is using facial recognition software to racially profile Uyghurs, the Muslim ethnic minority who predominantly live in Xinjiang province. And then the New York Times ran a story about how 60 bucks in a slow news day was all it took to build a fairly accurate facial recognition machine, as creepy as it is legal. And then I boarded a JetBlue flight to Mexico, and instead of scanning my boarding pass, they scanned my goddamn face. I tweeted about it, and then Edward Snowden retweeted it with the comment, this is only the beginning. We welcome back the crew to talk about our dystopian present. Welcome, you guys. Do you want to introduce yourselves to our viewers? Shereen, maybe we'll start yeah. with you. Thank you, Mackenzie. I'm Shereen Bargi. I'm one of the producers of the show, and thank you for having me. Of course, Isabel. Hi, I'm Isabel Alcantara, and I'm the associate producer. And uh, Mira. Hi, I'm Mira Al-Rahim, and I edit the podcast for 112BK. Thanks for coming back, you guys. So we've been on hiatus. It's good to see you guys again. Um, And in the interim, this kind of weird thing happened, which is that I tweeted about this JetBlue experience, and it went, as they say, as the young people say, viral. Um, So I'm just wondering, maybe for people who have not seen this tweet, maybe we can do a dramatic reenactment. Um, Shereen, do you want to play? You want to play JetBlue customer service? Of course. Okay. Always. So I tweeted. Here's my first tweet. I just boarded an international JetBlue flight. Instead of scanning my boarding pass or handing over my passport, I looked into a camera before being allowed down the jet bridge. Did facial recognition replace boarding passes, unbeknownst to me? Did I consent to this? And then JetBlue says, You're able to opt out of this procedure, Mackenzie. Sorry if this made you feel uncomfortable. Oh my god, your American accent is so good. uh, that's such a classic, like, non-apology apology, right? Oh, like, yeah, no, I didn't, no. I'm sorry this made you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. So then I said, follow-up question, presumably these facial recognition scanners are matching my image to something in order to verify my identity. How does JetBlue know what I look like? The information is provided by the United States Department of Homeland Security from existing holdings. And this is when I flipped the fuck out. (laughs) I said, so to be clear, the government provided my biometric data to a privately held company? Did I consent to this? How long is my data held by JetBlue? And even if I opt out at the scanners, you already have my information, correct? We should clarify. These photos aren't provided to us, but are securely transmitted to the Customs and Border Protection Database. JetBlue does not have direct access to these photos and doesn't store them. So that to me is like the backpedal of all the backpedals, right? Mm-hmm. Like I wonder if a supervisor was like, oh, no, oh, we can't. She's actually angry. Yeah, we, we can't say that. <laughs> we can't say that. Right? <laughs> we can't be like, uh, yes? No. Right. Oh, we, actually, we, we just kidding. No. Yeah. <laughs> the facial, it doesn't even work. It's just a charade. <laughs> right. It's not a real camera. It's not a real camera. No, no it's, it's just, just a price. It's just a mirror. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it did look remarkably like me. Okay, so then I said, 
would love more info about how my image was matched to a name on the flight manifest. I looked at the camera and a few seconds later, the gate opened. Was my image in the space of those seconds sent to CBP, run through a database, matched to a name, and then sent back to JetBlue? You're quite the investigator, Mackenzie. Thank you. You're really yeah, asking the right you. questions here. It's almost like I'm a she's journalist, a journalist on the side. Almost. <laughs> almost like almost. she's a journalist. You should be a journalist. <laughs> Thanks, should you should do guys. this for a living. <laughs> And I think they give up here because they're like, here's a link. So that link, um, it says JetBlue gives me a link to a press release. That is like <laughs> so oh, focused. It's just oh like, and it's all about how this is like going to be like convenient to people who fly because now you can just oh, like go right great. through. And so then I quote a line from the press release, quote, there is no pre-registration required. I'll say this press <laughs> release really doesn't tell me anything about how it works. EFF, Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, can you shed some light on this? How concerned should I be? Did they? Did they shed light? They did. They re- they tweeted later and they were like, uh, really fucking concerned. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. And they linked to some articles. So wait, but then JetBlue's not done. JetBlue says something else. JetBlue basically is like, we found another article that might be interesting to you. It talks a bit about the data and how it's processed. And in their defense, this time they linked to a WBUR article. So this mm. is like actual reportage by NPR that that looks at both sides of it. And so, again, I sort of quote a line from this piece. It says, it took her photo comparing her picture to a preloaded photo database of all the passengers with tickets on this flight. It sounds like opting out isn't really an option. I cannot go through the scanner, but my data will already have been accessed and loaded into a database. Hmm. So that was the end of that discussion. I hate that. Yeah. How do you feel about it? Tell me why. I hate that a lot. I don't think any privately held company should have access to DHS anything. I think you like you give your information, like including your passport number and everything willingly when you book the ticket. I don't understand why anything more than that is necessary. And this is coming from someone who gives biometrics on the regular because I do come through the border as a Mexican citizen and I have to give my fingerprints and they do take a picture of me every time I go through. Um, But that's at the immigration checkpoint. Which is, I like at that point, you're like, yeah, this is a person with a badge, with a secure system computer, as secure as like government systems can be, I guess. But it's not a company where someone has to make a profit, and right. in already that poses a conflict for me. Mm-hmm. Totally, because, and I think that was curious about yeah. why they backpedal because first they were like, oh, this is just like JetBlue speeding up the process, and then they were like, wait, 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 it's not JetBlue, it's not JetBlue, it's actually CBP. And if that's yeah. true, there was absolutely no signage that suggested that. Like it very Which much is felt part of yeah. the JetBlue boarding process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and like similarly to you, you know, I joined Global Entry. I have TSA pre-check. Like I made the decisions for myself that I would hand over certain biometric data to the government mm-hmm. in order to shave off a couple hours at the airport. Sure. And that seemed like something I was willing to do. But I also, you know, it's an issue of informed consent. Like I knew what I was getting into. Sure. And so now all of a sudden when it's like, oh, we're also working with JetBlue and Delta. Like I have so many questions before I feel yeah. prepared to consent to that. What do you say to people who are like, well, I have nothing to hide. I really welcome this development. I'm, I'm doing like my weird Twitter troll voice. This yeah. is what people actually said on Twitter, which was like, what do you have to hide? I have nothing to hide. I can uh. really speak personally to that question because up until very recently, I used to be one of these people. I used to be the kind of person that really didn't understand what the big deal with Edward Snowden was, what the big deal with Chelsea Manning was. I used to think like, well shit, what the hell do I care if they have my stuff? I have nothing to hide. I don't care. If this makes us safer, like, I'm ready to relinquish my data to the government for the purposes of national security. 
But and now, now you have something to hide. Well, no, saying? I don't. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> no, that's not the implication of my change of heart. But that said, in the last two years, I've become more and more concerned about, you know, everything that we're talking about right now, like how much data do they have? What did I consent to? What have I accidentally consented to without knowing? And it's, and it's caused more anxiety, like, for me, you know? And, and, I, and I've started, I've really started to see, like, what the main issue with Edward Snowden does and Chelsea Manning. It's, it's started to feel more personal. It used to feel really impersonal. I don't know. What I tell them is, like, you just don't want someone up your ass, like, all the time. Like, I don't know. Like, they can't just not without know my everything consent. that you know. Not without your consent. Correct. They can't just know everything you do. It's, it's just ex- extremely violating of what you feel like are inalienable rights to your own space. Privacy. To, like, to privacy. I mean, listen, in this country in 2019, you can't go missing. You know, there used to be a time in America's recent history where you could, like, you know, kind of fall off the face of the earth. I mean, you know, because you wanted to, not because, like, something bad happened to you or whatever. But you know like, what I mean? Like that the, couldn't happen Like the anymore. guy from Into the Wild, Chris yeah, McCandless, exactly. that you just, like, that dropped stuff. off the yeah. whatever. If you no had to disappear in America in 2019, you couldn't do it. But you should have the right to disappear if you wanted to disappear. And, like, you just feel like that's just not your right anymore. And that's, and that's what I tell people. I mean, I feel like the government needs to maybe take some, like, sex education classes about, like, the concept of enthusiasm enthusiastic consent yeah like we can go forward together down this dystopian uh pathway but only after i give enthusiastic informed consent which i totally did not do right i have a question do we know what kind of programs uh specifically are being used to take the pictures? No, we don't. Because and so I did read up a little bit on this because like okay. BuzzFeed News had um, a really good piece about this. So this was actually a program that the Obama administration signed uh, yeah. into effect. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and there was like no fire under it until mm. recently. And then the Trump administration was like, oh, by the way, this needs to be implemented at all airports for international flights by the end of 2019. And so the actual implementation, it seems, is a little bit like piecemeal, like we're not sure what cloud servers they're using. It's probably Amazon or Microsoft, uh, though. But we um, know that there's some really serious problems with those. They're so shy. Yes. We know that yes. for minorities, for women, it's not accurate. Well, that study well, that you're talking about with minorities was that I think the ACLU took this Amazon software yeah. and ran it against current members of Congress, <laughs> and it returned something like 22... 28. 28. 28 members of Congress were positively ID'd Probably, as yeah. having criminal records, and surprise, wow. 40% of them were people of color. Yeah. Wow. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, and I hope this isn't too much, like, too tangential, but I think, I think it really has to do with what we're talking about. Like, I feel like we're living in an era where like governments are making us feel like we need these technologies in order to like feel safe. Fear-mongering. There's, there's so much like ambient fear around these days. Like especially with the advent of like the war on terror and the ambient warfare that's like followed. Like we're just constantly like looking over our shoulders thinking like, you know, that like, you know, terrorist boogeymen are about to like just mess everything up and 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 they make you feel like you need this surveillance. Oh, definitely. And they need and it's safe and it's better for you if your name is on a database because maybe that would stop some bad man from doing something really bad. Yeah. Like 9/11. I don't know. That's like well, a leap. But like, you I'm, know no, what I'm it's, it's, it's not, not even a leap. It's not a leap because <laughs> a leap. you can you can 100% track the rise in mobile technology to the 9/11 text. Yeah. That's when it started because everybody needed a, a way to contact each other if something would have happened because that was the big problem because there was no way to get a hold of people that were on the ground that were in the city because if you were out and you didn't no one had a cell phone no one knew if you were dead or alive right i mean i also want to point out that like this they may say that this is to keep us safer 
However, I I do question a couple things. I question the timing of this rollout, and I question the fact that this was a flight to Mexico. And I travel a lot internationally, and I see other people being like, yes, on my flight to London, like I was scanned too. But, like, it sort of dovetails very nicely with the administration's obsession about keeping Mexicans out of the country. And when they first rolled out this test phase, I read that first it was like a Delta flight from Atlanta to Japan. And so they, like, got that technology. They got worked out some of the bugs. Uh. Then they immediately switched it on a flight to Mexico. And I just... I have some questions about it. Does not make any sense? I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, okay. Were they just trying the prototype of this technology on the Japan flight and then like rolling it out for like the official? To me, it seems like like a red herring, right? Where it's like, oh, this isn't about Mexicans. Like, we tried it on Japanese people. Yeah. And that's always gone over great in American history. (laughs) Totally. No no historical problems with Japanese people, for sure. You know, to Shireen's point, too, about this like 80% success rate, another thing is, is that. It take a human can adjust that success rate, mm. right? So like if they want it to return a 95% success rate, that doesn't mean necessarily that they have updated the technology to be better. It means they've just set the thresholds for matches lower. Mm. Right. So like theoretically, it could return a hundred percent success rate and some of those people would just be getting through without, without accurate actually, IDs, exactly. which is the effectively the same thing that happens right now with a printed boarding pass. That's right. Where yeah. you can just swap it with someone at the airport. And that's it. <laughs> Does know? anyone want to talk about this kid who's suing Apple? Yeah. Somebody had been stealing Apple products and they used his ID. It oh, didn't yeah. have his photo on it. But apparently he says that Apple then like programmed his information, including a photo, which they obtained from somewhere, into their system. And then he was apprehended for additional thefts. And Apple says that they don't use facial recognition cameras in their stores, but he's like, well, then how, how did I get misidentified? Yeah. Mm. Oh, and Apple's mm. so slimy because so I feel shady. like they're the ones that are always like, we don't, we don't like stalk you. We're not invasive. Like we believe in privacy for our customers. Like that, that's a tagline on their website that I see all the time when I'm like, mm. right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's so much involved there, and it just brings back. Like to the original point from the beginning, that's like the minute that a company stands to make a profit from your yeah. personal data, there's a conflict. Thank you guys for talking through this with me. I am continually terrified by every new news story about how facial recognition technology is being used in ways that we didn't even know about. And I'm glad that we're all in this together. Love to be scared. Yeah. <laughs> Collective. God, we have each other. It's the best kind of fear. Yeah. Thanks, you guys. Until next time. See Thanks you next time. Thanks for having us. That's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to let us know is to send us a Harry and David fruit basket. Or you could review 112BK on iTunes. And also, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.